Amen. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord. I'm awake. The devil's in trouble. You're awake and the devil after you is in trouble. You're about to wake up, turn around, and he's about to run. Hallelujah. Let's turn our Bibles. I, I want to, I'm hoping to get this settled in my spirit that you got it. So I'm going to take it a different direction today. Let's go to Matthew, the 16th chapter, and we're going to go from verse 16 through 19. Then we're going to go over to our accompanying scriptures, which is Romans 8, 1 through 6. This is Jesus talking to Peter. It's not that Jesus is confirming that Peter will be the first pastor of the church because he wasn't. They sent to James, and James was the first pastor of the church. And so Peter was an apostle subject to James. And uh, in verse 16, we start this revelation that has come from God to Simon Peter. And Simon Peter answered and said to him, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on the earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in the heavens. Then charged he his disciples that they should not tell anyone or any man that he was Jesus the Christ. Let's go to Romans now, Romans 8, 1 through 6. I have known this secret for years, and uh, just now am I being able to share it and get into it uh, at length. And in Romans 8 chapter, this has nothing to do with condemnation like we would think about condemnation or remembrance of your sins, a badgering of your sins. There is now, there, there is now no condemnation or sentencing or judicial limitation to those that are in Christ Jesus who walk now after the flesh but after the spirit. Notice that there is freedom. There's no bondage, no limitation. No divine judgment that imprisons a person that is in Christ, not living after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Remember where the Spirit of the Lord is? There is liberty. And then it says this, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. And what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. What did it do? It condemned it. What did it do? It sentenced it. It restricted it. It limited its power over the redeemed man. 
And then it says, Romans 6 says, sin shall not have dominion over you. And it says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Now, we know there are two types of believers, one that, are, that will struggle with carnality, the other that will follow God. Now, what happens to the one that follows uh, the fleshly mind or the carnal mind? He begins to be limited, sentenced, separated from his benefits in Christ Jesus, which are the benefits of righteousness. And it says, and they are after the flesh, they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. They always respond the way the flesh wants them to. But they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. Even though you're born again, you will live under a restricted, limited place of life. You'll be dead. And, and you'll, improve, you'll uh, suffer that dominion over your life. And then it says this, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now the keys of the kingdom of God are the same thing that are the laws of God. Only the righteous can activate them, and only the righteous can operate under them. So we can, in, we, you know, I hear Christians tell uh, their kids, oh, don't say that. You'll be cursed. If they aren't saved, they're already cursed, sweetheart. You, you can't give them the keys of the kingdom to loose heaven and to bind earth, or to bind heaven or to loose earth, when they're not part of the church. Amen. Amen. These are the rules or the laws of the spirit of life. A key is something that opens or gives access to something on both sides of the door. In other words, if you open it for one, then another comes in. If you open the door with a key to let your kids in the house, the cat comes running out. Could again, amen. Yeah, absolutely. All right. A key can be used to stop the access of something or to activate from either side. So you can shut up heaven through the keys or the misuse of a key or the inactive use of the key. You can have the key, but if you don't use it, heaven will never, ever flood your life. And you can have the key and you can open it and let the devil in as much as you can let God in. So keys stop access or give access to something. The holder of the key determines the access of which will happen. In other words, if God is invading your life and active in your life, it's because you have used the keys. God is subject to his word. His word contains in it the keys of life and the keys of death. They are the keys that bind. They are the keys that loose. So he's put those keys into your hand, and he is subject to it. Oh, well, God can do whatever he wants. Well, he can't save an unrepentant sinner. And he really can't even control a born-again Christian. Or we'd all be free from sin. And let's just, from Friday to Sunday, we've been a mess. Was it yesterday that you got mad at your wife? Was it yesterday you wished to God you hadn't had kids? Was it yesterday you wanted to run over the neighbor's dog? Was it yesterday you wished to God they would never have moved in? 
Yeah, those are Christian thoughts. Yeah, right. No. Now, I want to talk to you about the law. What a law does is just what a key does. A, a criminal or those that will break the law or misuse the law are like those that break into your house. You know there are people that break into your life that don't have a key. They don't have any access. They have no right being there. I think you used to be one of them guys, didn't you, David? I'm not going to go there. You're not going there. Okay, we just pulled up. It could have been. Oh, yeah. Uh, so people break into our house. Now, it doesn't mean that they have a right there. But what is going to put them outside of our house and keep them outside of our house and bind them from coming back to our house? The law. Could have given an amen. The law. A criminal can come in by force or a stranger and put himself in a place of violating you, but it will never ever be turned around, him taken out, and you not being violated unless you enforce the law. Could have get an amen. Right. So, in order for you to enforce a law, you are going to have to contact a power greater than yourself because you couldn't keep him out of your house. He came into your house despite you being there. And the only way that you can gain the supreme rule over that thief, over that guy that has broken into your house, is for you to enforce a law. Could have given an amen. Enforce a law. If you do not enforce a law, then understand you can be violated, you can be plundered, you can be made fearful, you can have your goods taken away from you, and it will do nothing except open the door for it to be repeated again, again, and again. That's what happens to a lot of Christians. They start living for God and the devil breaks in. He violates, he forces himself into their life. And so Christians many times bow. And what they do is allow a pathway to be brought into their life because they do not react to the unlawful intervention or them becoming a victim to the devil they don't stop it by using laws that are connected to something greater than themselves. All right. So, a law is like a key. It binds the activity or looses the activity so that people on individual decisions can either bind enemies against them or loose enemies against them. So if you have been broke into, then you're going to have to apprehend a greater power than that is your own, and you're going to have to break it and enforce and cause something greater on your behalf than what has been in your house. Because the man breaking in wasn't afraid of you. Did you hear me? But with the powers 
there on your side, he would not dare break in. Amen. All right. In, this is just a history lesson, 1280 B.C. or in the 8th century B.C., Athens, Greece, Athens, Greece, which is mentioned in the Bible, was the first society to put laws into force in, so that all of their citizens could be equal except women and purchased slaves. I'm just telling you what it says. Not that I agree with it. I'm just telling you, do women have rights? Forcibly, they have taken them. Do they have any rights without men? No, they don't need them. All right, that was a joke. Might as well laugh, women. Praise God, get over it, hallelujah. All right, women and those that were enslaved, which were ruled as people of no value. See, laws protect things of value. Could have given an amen. Athens established their law system on three things. Number one, a divine influence. Number two, the customary life of the city. Number three, upon a constitutional resolution that put value and extracted value from individuals. And it's amazing that America really has its judicial system based out of those three things. We, our judicial system is influenced by divine influence. That's why we have Lady Liberty is blind because God's not a respect of persons. That's why we used to have Ten Commandments in uh, many of our courthouses and so forth because it was a recognition of this court is influenced by divine mindsets and thoughts. And then whatever is customary. See, in the world that we live in, there are lots of laws that are on the books that are not enforced. And people don't know them. So until they are put pressure on or called upon to be active, people are not even aware that there's a law. You know that there is a law that in the state of Ohio that there should be no pornography around. But because people accept it, because they covered up in truck stops and so forth, and people don't say anything, they are allowed to distribute pornography or X-rated magazines. But if you start raising a hoot and a holler, that store is going to have to remove that pornography. But because of the custom that we have, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to get a bad name. I don't want this. We put up with it. So next time you go into a truck stop or a store and you have to cover up your kid's eyes, that's just an action that you have decided to live with. You know, a sound ordinance. We have sound ordinances in America, but they're no good unless you enforce them. See, the devil is just as ruthless with his 
perversions and his sin, his nature and his open defilement of what is pure, whether it's on television, whether it's on radio or anything else. You want me to tell you why people cuss on TV now? Because you never said anything when they first started. Yeah. So we have to, we got to realize these laws are in effect. It's just that we don't do anything. Well, I don't think there's a law against cussing on TV. Oh, yeah, it is. It's a law of acceptance. If you don't accept it and you call the people that are running commercials on there and you send emails and you start a petition, they will change it. But because you accept it. It's not going to change. Hello? Yeah. You know, uh, I know that uh, uh, President uh, Trump, whether you like it or not, he's our president. He got bombarded for uh, separating children from parents, which I think is totally wrong. But he never started that law. President Obama started that law. Hello? Yeah. They passed it by a Democrat, Senate, and Congress. And he set that in motion. But nobody complained about him because they made laws and forced them undercover. Trump's just comes out in the open. I wish he was a little wiser and a little more deceiving, but he's just not in him. But, you know, before you start taunting and throwing stones, you ought to find out who started it all. Now, I don't care, President Obama, I don't care. He was still our president. He passed the laws. But, you know, you need to give honor to whom honors do, and you need to give criticism to who criticism. We are a nation of laws. And if you want laws changed, even in uh, immigration, look, the last laws that were passed by immigration were passed by Democrats. If you want to change, Congress should do their law their job. They should pass a law. It's not the president's job to pass law. It's Congress's job. And they don't want to get their hands dirty up because they brought it to the place that it's at right now. Look, I want everybody to have an opportunity, but I want them to do it legally. That's it. I feel sorry for them. That's why we created a trade. That's why we got factories in uh, Mexico. That's why we have all types of things happening in Mexico. Because we helped their economy so they would help close the borders. But they did not close the borders. When Donald Trump got uh, elected president, I'm not on a political thing. I'm just telling you the facts of the matter is that when laws aren't enforced, you get a whole lot of wrong. And when they are enforced, people get a whole lot of criticism. Now, when Donald Trump was getting elected, I was sitting in Mexico City. And I was sitting getting a cappuccino. And the guy uh, turned to look at me and he said, uh, we're afraid of Trump. I said, really? I said, why? He said, he's going to stop us from coming into America. I said, uh, I see in your newspaper today that you have 50,000 Nigerians coming from Nigeria and your country are inducing them into uh, your country. And I noticed that you guys are riding in the streets and complaining. He said, yes, when they come in, they come in on our money. Our telephone service goes up. Our taxes go up. Our food go up. 
I said, you know what? I said, you're inviting 50,000. We're inviting 250,000 a year. So how come you get a complaint and we don't? Absolutely. Hypocritical. Just hypocritical. And one of the pastors that would drive me around was complaining about them too. I said, listen, we love our brothers. Well, I know it, but they've got their own country. Really? Where are you from? Alaska. Really? See, people are narrow-minded when it comes to looking at things the opposite way. We have free speech as long as we say what they want us to say. No, no. Everybody has free speech. Nobody should be browbeat about it or anything else. We all have free speech. And if you get mad at somebody expressing their opinion, then there's something wrong in your core value itself. Love me, you know me. You don't know your electorates and the people you have put in power. Moving right along. Okay. Go back to the law. We are a nation of laws, and we have to observe those laws. We do not observe those laws. What we do is we negate all behavior of mankind. A law is set in motion to regulate and to monitor the behavior of people. Why do you, why do you think we're told to drive 70 miles an hour? To control your behavior. Now, if you want to violate that, go to Audubon. And if you violate it here, get prepared to write a check. Yeah, laws are set in motion to cause people to be contained in behavior. But in, it is taught in the same sense that we are governed by God's law. What does God's law lay out for you? You once lived like the children of darkness, but now you are the children of light. Have no celebration, association with the fruits of life. You were once fornicators, but now you're not. You were once adulterers, now you're not. He that stole, let him steal no more, but let him labor that he may have to give. What are the laws of God doing? They're dictating your behavior. And what he does in God's law and his mercy and goodness, he reveals to you the outcome of your disobedience before you've ever committed it. Help me, doctor. Help me. It, it's a truth. Laws dictate behavior one to another, to our government, to our society, to our community, to our covenants of payables. You don't pay your electric bill, there's a covenant. We're going to turn it off. It leads you to motivation to pay your bills. Hallelujah. Okay, hallelujah. Don't worry, I'm going to get to where I'm going. Hallelujah. Now, the laws of God are structured by God, and they are to be, they are in their purest form balanced for all men. Why? They're all born out of love. They're all born out of righteousness. 
They're all born out of no respect of persons, and they're all born out of a requirement of faith. That's why God treats everybody the same. The word is no respect to persons. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The law dictates you must call. No one can call in your place. Amen? What does that do? That defines behavior. It defines the act of faith. So, God knowing, the omniscience of God knowing the beginning to the end, the end from the beginning, He lays out laws. Somebody say, He lays out law. And those laws are formed before you and I are ever born. Before any man has ever done one right or one wrong, these laws of the spirit of life that set us free from the laws of sin and death are set in motion and the laws of sin and death are set in motion also. But they can be overrode by the law of sin and death. Shoo! All right, hallelujah. I'm going to rejoice over this. I get so happy. Hallelujah. Now, since God is all-knowing, all His laws are established again by love, righteousness, respect, no respect to persons, and faith. Now, let's go to a law that we're going to talk about today. This is the law. I want to talk to you about the law of confession. The law of confession. We're going to start back at Proverbs 18, 20 through 21. The law of confession. I'm going to show you some great things about confession today, about the words that we say. Proverbs. Now, this is a law. This is even before the New Testament. It is a law that reveals how men can experience life and death. And a man's belly shall be satisfied with the things that he wants. Oh, shall be satisfied with the fruit or the words that proceed out of his mouth. And with the increase of his lips shall he be what? All right, next verse. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they that love either one, death or life, shall eat the fruit thereof. Now let's go to 1 Peter 3, 8 through 10. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 10. I know that we all pretty well know what confession is, but we're going to look at it from a Bible perspective. Finally, all ye of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courageous, not rendering. Somebody say not. Don't ever, 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 ever. Give evil back for evil. Everybody should understand that Christians in the right mind do not wish nor do they respond in an evil way, nor would they hurt anybody intentionally. So people lose their minds even though they are walking with God. And sometimes they give their thoughts, their emotions over to the devil. But we are not to respond in like manner. Amen? Evil for evil, railing for railing. 
but contrariwise, blessing, knowing ye are thereunto what? Called. That you should inherit a blessing. If you give out a blessing, you get a blessing. Next verse. Now, what's these words? He that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from what? Now, why? Because if you give your tongue to evil, just like if you give your tongue to blessing, you'll have blessing. You give your tongue to evil, you're going to have evil. And his lips that's, that they speak, no guile. Next verse. Let him excuse evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. In other words, there's nothing more important than doing right to another person, even at the cost of yourself. All right, notice what it said. If you want to live life, you want to see good days, you're going to have control what you talk. Let's put it this way. You're going to have control what you join yourself to. Your words are bridges of agreement. Okay. Now, let's see what a confession is. A confession. Somebody say a confession. Is a statement by an individual or a group of like-hearted people. It is acknowledgement of a personal fact, a personal fact, and confession is usually accredited with moral wrong or wrongs or negativity in some sort of way. When we think about somebody making a confession, usually our minds in the body of Christ runs to confession of our sins, confession of our faults, always talking about the negative aspect of our life, which is true. But not all confessions are negative in their purpose. Could again amen. All right, it is a statement of something wrong that was done on purpose or not, or by mistake. It is a statement that a sinner would make to a priest or a, doc or a documented statement made by a criminal that is usually signed and recorded. That's usually what we think about a confession. But think about that a sinner is never connected to his sins until he confesses it to the priest. A criminal is never connected to a crime until he confesses it or it's recorded. Could have given an amen. Right. When you confess something, you become one with it or you become owner of it or you become identified with that identity. If you killed somebody and you confessed it, what would people call you? Well, the killer of or the murderer of so-and-so, John Joe has confessed. No, in other words, he's no more John Joe the free. He's John Joe the murderer because he's made a confession. Amen? 
And so a confession binds us with something. Not all confessions rule or reveal wrong. Example, a confession of love. David, did you tell Sharon you loved her? Yes. Or did you just say, hey, you want to get married? <laughs> what did you say? You confessed your love to her. Yes, I did. And she said, I don't know for whatever. I believe God's leading me to marry you. What did she say? Well, I can't really remember every word, but yeah, she just said she loved you. Yeah, well. She just said, I love you. No, <laughs> Phyllis, did you confess that you love me? Yes, you did. Hallelujah. And I recorded it. I have it printed. I have it locked up in the lawyer's office. Not really. A confession of love. And what does that confession of love bring? It bridges a covenant, doesn't it? And it means that both parties, when a confession is made one to another, it establishes a covenant that is so profound, so divine, that two people become one. And it's never to be broken. Not based on anything, performance, benefits, money, or anything else, based on a confession. Right? Okay, that's pretty good. All right. Now, as Christians, we must never view confessions as a bad thing or a negative thing. The law of our words and actions are responded to by God. Let's go to 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9. You know, when we get... David, when you got married, did you go around telling everybody, uh, hey, I'm single, man? Or did you go around telling everybody, no, no, I'm David Hewitt, I'm married. Yes, I went around telling everybody I was married. And it began to rule your behavior. Sure it did. Really? The laws of the marriage institution, based on a confession, began to mold your mind and your actions. It began to direct your value system yes. and your heart. Yes, it did. I used to be free. Now I'm henpecked. <laughs> yeah, right. And, uh, you know, can you go somewhere? I have to ask Phyllis. Sure, all of your identities changed as soon as you said, I do. I used to be a strong man, 6'7", 255 pounds, of six packs, man of steel. I got married. Phyllis stripped me of that real fast. <laughs> now I'm a little old shriveled up weenie. Hallelujah. It changed my identity, my covenant that was born out of a confession changed my identity. Now people see me. Oh, man of God, Phyllis's husband. Okay, yeah, right. Now, 1 John 1, 9 says this. If we confess our sins, negativity, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Watch the positiveness out of this. And to cleanse us from all, somebody say all, unrighteousness. Notice that a confession the law of confession, the law of words, sets in motion an overthrow of what the law of sin and death has done. What is the law of sin and death? A man is tempted 
of his own sins when he's drawn away of his own lust. James 1.13 down through 17. That when that lust is conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin bringeth forth what? Do you realize that a confession can reverse the kingdom of death and its rule and its penalty over you? Over you. It can do that all in one statement. Amen? Now, so think of this. It says that, and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Somebody say all unrighteousness. That simply means that when you repent of your sins, that you are immediately cleansed of all unrighteousness. Now, let me explain this, that what a man sows, that shall he reaps. And this statement, because this statement says there is no reward for what you sown. But it doesn't mean that. When we reap what we sow, it means that there has been a repetition of seed planting. And even though God cleanses us from righteousness, those acts that we did are going to come up on us and we're going to have to pay the price. But God is not orchestrating the penalty. You have sown it yourself, but it is not coming from God. Once you come back into righteousness of God, God responds to you as a righteous man, not as a sinner that has a new future, not as a sinner turned over a new leaf, a sinner whose sins are cast as far as the east is to the west. So there would be nothing that God could penalize you on, but what you can do, all the things that you did, like this. We'll just use it real simple. If you slept with a woman and she got pregnant, guess what? Little feet are going to find you out. And you're going to pay child support. And you're going to help pay for his college. And you should. You should. You should. You should. Well, I have to get another job. You ought to work five of them. God, if you got time to play around with other people's property, instead of going home and take care of your own, you ought to be getting another job. Moving right along. Just a thought. So... It says that we immediately... Now, let me ask you something. Have you ever committed a sin? Have you ever repented of it? When did you think you were forgiven? When you felt better? No. God's activity towards you is totally independent of your emotional system. The greatest act of faith is to decree and declare and accept your forgiveness. Now, when are we forgiven? Does it take 50 years? Does it take three weeks? Take two weeks? So, in other words, the first time that you confess your sin, the negative part, immediately you enter into a positive part. Amen? Amen? That's why confession of our weaknesses, confessions of our sin, are not bad things. They are positive things. Because when we confess them one to another, we are invoking the help and the giftings of another. Now, if that person does something wrong with it, then we invoke, the Lord delivers by my hand. No, I'm kidding. No. Well, what do people tell other people? Well, then you confess your faults to a stupid man or a stupid woman. 
You, you gave them to someone that was not trusted. That doesn't mean that it wasn't right for you to do. It just simply means that you can't trust him as a brother because he doesn't love you and he will not be your keeper. He will be your uncoverer of your nakedness. All right? Okay, let's go. Uh, when we do this, it rids a believer of all unrighteousness, all consequences of his sin. So we understand that a confession of faith that we confess is a confession of positiveness. Somebody say positiveness. Now, this is where the battle begins. Because the devil is going to try to get you to remember you're wrong. Don't listen to him. Your sins are between you and God. And if at worst, it's between you and God and another man. If you have to make restitution, you make restitution. If you have to apology, you apologize. You have to go and bridge, rebuild your bridges that you know your brother has an odd against you. You come to the place of your altars and you go back to them and say, look, let's make this right so that my life at my altar is not affected. Amen? Amen. Get up and do it. Praise God. Hallelujah. And so the battle begins. The battle begins, do you believe that God did what he did? Or do you believe the feelings that you are involved in? Now, let's go to Romans 10, 9. We all know this scripture. Romans 10, 9. Hallelujah. Whew. I am excited about confession. There is a negative part of it, but thank God my negativeness can lead me to a place of great positiveness. Amen. All right. Romans 10, 9 says this. That if thou shalt confess. Somebody say confess. Come into agreement with. Say the same thing. Become identified with. With thy mouth the Lord Jesus. And shalt believe in thine heart. That God hath raised him from the dead. Now. Let's look at that scripture. That if you will confess and if you will believe in your heart. Now, what does believing in your heart mean? You believe in the work that Jesus did on your behalf. You believe in the graceful work of redemption. But it does you no good without confession. Because it says, thou shalt be saved. It takes two parts takes a discovery of the grace of God and the exercise of the faith of God, right? Next verse. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto what? Salvation. Wow, great. Next verse. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord is over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Next verse. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let me ask you something. When were you saved, David? When I asked Jesus Christ in my life. In other words, when you confessed that he was Lord. Yes. Did it take like three weeks to get the, you know, you got to sign stuff and all. The, it's all got to go through the system and they lose your paperwork. You ain't gone or what? Oh, oh, I believed in my heart and I confessed with my mouth. You believed in your heart, you confessed with your mouth. And, and you, you were saved at that point. Yes. 
You really believe you were saved at that point? By faith. Still am. You, so you believe that when you confess that Jesus Lord, you got saved. You were totally transformed. My sins weren't forgotten, they were forgiven. They were forgiven, and they were cast far as east as Suez. You believe that. Absolutely. And there's no record in what you did. Now, just be real, David. Now, look, 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 wait, wait, wait. Let's just be real. Look, you did the stuff. You went to jail. You did the stuff. You were a drunk. You did the stuff. You were a breaking and enter. You did the stuff. Well, I know it, but now you're an ex, not a... But you really are an ex-sinner. Yeah, but look, I, I, yeah, yeah, I know all the Christian lingo, but you're really a sinner saved by grace. No, you're not. You can't be saved and still be a sinner. How long have you been? Pay attention. I'm trying to teach you to. Glory to Please forgive him. X that out. Replay. So you can't be a sinner saved by grace. You're not a sinner. Hallelujah. If you're saved, you can't be a sinner. A sinner means your sins are forgiven. A sinner means that you're a new creature. A sinner means you're a child of God. If you're a sinner, you're a child of the devil. If you're saved, you're a child of God. Amen. I got to now see David messed up my theology. I was saying, gee, man, hallelujah. All right. Now, confession does something for you and I, doesn't it? It transforms us, now, now get this, from one kingdom to another kingdom. It translates us from death to life. Translates us from being cursed to being blessed. From being enemies to being children. From being alienated to being kings and priests unto our God. Now, when did that take place? Thank you, David. Immediately. And all you're doing is discovering what that confession did for you. That's all that the Bible is about. Is unveiling to you what your confession of faith did for you in the eyes of God. Now, having said that, let's look at, uh, let's go to 2 Corinthians 12th chapter. This is, now I'm going to get into where I want to go. And we've only got a couple of minutes, so I'm going to give you a break, and we're going to finish this, and then hallelujah. Oh, Jesus, Hallelujah. I'm hallelujah. Praise God. Hallelujah. Gee, hey, hallelujah. Uh, where am I? Yeah, First Corinthians. Let's go to a verse uh, maybe 7. Okay. And Lisa, let's go to verse, yeah, no, no, one more verse, 8. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it should my, depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Most gladly, therefore, because of that statement, 
I will therefore rather glory in my weaknesses or my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my discovery of my weaknesses, in my reproaches, and all of the things that I need as necessarily getting by and living life in persecutions, in all the distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Now, that statement came from Joel. Could I have Joel 3.10? Joel 3.10 on the screen. Paul quotes that, and he makes it a revelation of his, but really it came out of this. And this talks about when God is coming back and he's going to meet the heathen in the valley of Jehoshaphat at the battle of Armageddon. And God says this, but beat your plowshares into swords and beat your pruning hooks into spears because it's going to be a time of war. And let the weak say, I am strong. Now, God is getting ready to amount an army that is united of those that are in heaven and those that are left on earth, the Jewish nation, and any Gentiles that have got saved in that period. But God says, this is what I want you to do. And in the midst of this vast number of humanity coming against you in the valley of Jehoshaphat, I want you to say, I am strong. I want you to stop looking at yourself against millions of people that have gathered against God and his righteous. And I want you to say, I am strong. You do what you can do with your plows and your pruning shears, but then you let me do what I need to do, and that's make you strong and courageous. Strong and courageous. So what Paul says is this. God told me my grace was sufficient. Therefore, I'm going to begin to say when I'm weak, I'm strong. Really, he was going to say, I'm going to speak things that are not as though they are. Now, let's go one more scripture we're going to close for today. Go to Zechariah 4, Zechariah 4, 5. Zechariah 4, 5. Yep. Zechariah 4, 5. Hallelujah. And please, if you didn't catch what I'm talking about, please get the tape. And uh, sometimes it's hard to articulate. Zechariah. Yeah, there you go. That's Zechariah. All right. And the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Hey, knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. And he answered and, answered and spake unto me, saying, this is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Next verse. Who art thou, O mountain, before whom Zerubbabel shall, thou shalt become a plain, and as he shall bring forth 
the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. What does God tell you and I? If you want to stop struggling with yourself, your own might and your own power, and you want me to do for you what you can't do for yourself, if you want me to transform you, save you, prosper you, bless you, deliver you, make you whole, all the words of salvation were saved by grace through faith, he says this, you can do it by declaring what I said about grace. In other words, what did Zechariah tell Zerubbabel? Mix faith with the grace of God, and I'll do for you what you can't do by flesh and power. Amen. How did we get born again? Not by the will of man, nor by the might of man, but by the will of God. We have been born from above and not from beneath. Come on. We have been born of the spirit and not of the flesh. Come on. We are the sons and daughters of God. Was it by works? No. Was it by human power? Somebody say no. How was it? It was by grace through faith. The power of confession causes men to live by the Spirit and to be released by the flesh. It calls all powers to bend. It calls all mountains to be level. It calls all valleys to be filled and causes us to be restored and built on the rock. It causes you and I to go from natural men to being spiritual men. It causes you and I to lose our last or our former identity and to take upon us a new identity. It demands that you and I, when we confess our rights in Christ Jesus, that we become associated with the promise and with the identity of Scripture. That's why a positive confession. Somebody say, oh, positive confession. Well, go around telling everybody, you know, I'm not saved anymore. I just, I'm just so cold in God. I'm just, and see how on fire you stay. That's true. You won't. Absolutely you won't. Go around telling your wife, honey, I don't love you. I love God. You're somewhere down on second or third run, honey. But I love you. See how long she keeps coming home. Now, I love God more than I love Phyllis, but I don't go around telling her. Unless I don't want to be around her. I say, honey, i got to spend time with my first love, Jesus. She'll say, where are you going to spend time? On the boat. I can get alone. I mean, no, that's kind of hypocritical. But I might have used that in the past. But now, I don't. <laughs> now, <laughs> your confession. A criminal becomes one with a crime and with his identity by confession. A sinner becomes born again, identified with the cross and disidentified with this sin by confession. You become disassociated with the kingdom of darkness by your confession. 
you become recognized as seated in heavenly places by your confession. Whatever you do not confess, you will never be one with, and you will not be transformed into by God's Spirit. So let's not speak negativity. Let's not confess negativity. But let's confess what God said about you and I. God told Jeremiah, where we're going to start next week, Jeremiah was saying, I'm a child. And God said, stop saying that. Say what I said about you. Because you can stop what God wants to do by siding with a negative confession. Amen? Yes. Hallelujah. Praise God. Stand to your feet. Hallelujah. Thank you for that Lutheran. Hallelujah. They, they say, that wasn't a Lutheran. That was, thank God it's over. All right. Hallelujah. Praise God. The laws of confession. The laws of confession. What you confess, you will be. Write down what you speak just for a week. And every time you say something negative, bring it to me and I'm going to pray that it'll happen to you. Yeah, I, I mean, we're going to come into agreement that what you say is going to happen. But I want you to believe the Bible. If it means that you lose everything, so be it. If it means that, you know, you gain 500 pounds, you keep saying, oh, I'm fat, I'm putting on weight, I'm 50. I want to agree with you. That you'll blow up like a healing balloon. That God will quicken every calorie to multiply itself every time you put it across your lips. Because you're negative about yourself. How about if you just start saying, God, I thank you. That, Father, I live a good, healthy, balanced life. That, God, my desire is to eat healthy. And, God, you change my appetites that I will live long. Because I want to see long life and good days, God. Hallelujah. God, I thank you that my weight just regulates itself as I begin to eat right. I thank you, Father. I just am not going to give myself to the appetites 